Amen. Good morning. I know I'm, I, I'm, I hope to hear you say good morning again, but uh, today as we gather and we're online, uh, I'm glad that you could join us. If you're here, you're our guest, maybe somebody shared this live stream with you and you clicked on it, decided to join us. Welcome. Uh, my name is Jeff Ludington. I'm one of the pastors here at Generations Church. And I want to give you one more announcement. As we began the year, we began studying the book of Mark. And so Sundays, we're teaching through the book of Mark. Today, we're going to back up uh, about a half a chapter uh, to Mark chapter 1, a half a chapter right before where Alex was reading. We're going to finish chapter 1 and work into chapter 2, finish with that passage we just heard. Uh, in our community groups, some of them are starting beginning tonight. They're starting throughout this week, depending upon the leader and where the group is. Uh, they are going to be studying the gospel of Mark. And we've put together a daily reading schedule. If you wanted to get a little bit more out of the teaching series this year, then you would have the opportunity to join us and read a small passage every day. I told everybody it's about 6 to 12 verses every day, so it's a short passage. Uh, on the screen, what you're going to see is if, only if you would like the text reminders. You can text the word MARK to that phone number, 714-695-5333. You can text MARK to that number, and we will send you daily reminders, I think with the verse in it. But either way, we'll send you reminders to continue to read along with the church. So our idea was sometimes we just come to church and we hear the word, we hear a, a portion of the word. Sometimes we'll take that next step and we'll get involved in a small group and we'll study a little bit deeper, maybe in that same, uh, in that same passage or in the same gospel. But we want to build those habits. For this year, we're going to build new habits of daily scripture reading. And so one way we can do that is just kind of join a challenge for the next 90 days to read scripture with one another. And so we've got 90 days to work through the gospel of Mark. It begins tomorrow. So again, if you want a reminder, you can go ahead and text that number. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to jump into Mark chapter one. I'm going to pray again. I'm going to ask Ashley, can you start that timer, please? That way I don't keep you guys too long. Uh, but will you pray with me? God, thank you for this time to gather together. It's weird. It's weird. Just as Steve and I were talking before service, it's weird to have an empty room again. Um, we want to honor you. We want to honor people. Uh, with so many people in our church and around our church that are sick, this was a natural conclusion um, that it would be best to just kind of go online for just a short time. Um, God, but honestly, it's not what any of us want, really. We'd love to have this room full. And we'd love to have people here kids in the other building, kids outside doing things. We'd love to have that. So God, we just ask for your blessing on what we're doing. Would you honor the fact that we're trying to love one another and love the community that we're in? Will you meet with us even via this distance that we get the privilege of bridging through the internet? And so just thank you for the opportunity to gather today, not in person, even though we really want to be together. Will you honor that? Will you speak to us today, Lord? Jesus, we love you. This is a series about who are you that we might learn more about you. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start with a main idea that we'll put on the screen for you. Jesus, the teacher. Jesus was first and foremost a teacher sent with the message of a loving father to a wayward and broken humanity. Teaching was the primary ministry of Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this in an upcoming slide, but I want you to hear this. Until Jesus shifts his focus towards going to the cross... His primary ministry, the thing he said was most important, was his teaching. Last week we talked about Jesus, the messenger, that he brings a message from God. Well, he spends a good amount of his time teaching that to people. 
explaining, slowing down, moving through that, giving them this message from a loving father. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 21. It says, they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And so, new town, and immediately Jesus is teaching. We talked about that word immediately happening so many times in the gospel of Mark. This gospel is written as the shortest, briefest account of the life of Jesus, the teaching ministry of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And Mark, writing this, has this sense of urgency that you would come and know Jesus urgently as he wrote to an audience he hoped to reach with a message. And so there's this a sense of immediacy. So Jesus walks into a new city. He goes to the synagogue. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's a Jewish church. He goes to the Jewish church in the local community, and he begins to teach. Verse 22, and they, meaning the people in the synagogue, were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. They were astonished at his teaching. They were filled with wonder, is another way of saying. They were kind of wowed at his teaching. And it says, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not like those who typically taught them. So as Jesus goes in and teaches in a place that was common for teaching, a synagogue, like a church where teaching is common, we believe that the teaching ministry here in the church is one of the primary things that we get to do, right? That we, that we center around God's word every Sunday when we gather, that we worship God, that we give our hearts to God, that we listen to God's word, that we open up our hearts with the intention of allowing God to shape us. And our worship does that, our singing, our scripture reading, our message, all that helps us to do that. And so as Jesus goes into this city and says, immediately begins to teach, and it says they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. So we see this repetition of words. Again, this teaching ministry being highlighted. And so what is different about Jesus than the teachers that they're used to? And they answer that question for us. They, they see that he has a unique authority. Like we said last week, that he was a messenger, that he came with the message of God, that he came from God, with a message from God for us, and he is teaching that message. And so he carries that authority from God to the people. Verse 23, and immediately, there's another use of that word, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So again, another use of immediately. So there's this urgency in this story. But what happens here is inside this synagogue, a man who is possessed enters in, and then the demons, not the man, and, and I, I, I thought about this passage for a little bit, and I'll tell you why I say it that way. When someone comes in who is not in their right mind, whatever the reason, right, who says crazy things or does crazy things, just, just says these things that are outside of what we would maybe see as normal, we don't treat them with much validity. We try and figure out maybe what's wrong with them, if, if we're, it can help them, or whatever we could do. But what happens here is a man who's been possessed walks in, and the demons speak to Jesus publicly, audibly. Even the pronoun changes, not, not what do you have to do with me, what do you have to do with us? It's plural, right? And, this man, and this, through this man, they speak, and they say, I know you who you are. You're the Holy One of God. What do you have to do with us? 
And then one of them says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. I just want you to imagine you're there for a minute. And imagine something supernatural speaks. When I say supernatural, without good or bad, but in this case, not good, but, but just outside of what we have, what we do, what we typically experience. And that being speaks to Jesus and validates who Jesus is. Yet even this evil thing validates who Jesus is. Verse 25, it says, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. That scene, that setting, what took place there had to be a one-off moment for everybody in that room, right? This is not something that happened all the time. This was the only time people will see something like this. And it, and it feels a bit like a movie, like the only kind of things I've seen Hollywood has created. But we kind of get that from it, like this convulsion, this removal, this deliverance of this man from the demon or demons. Now, I have a, a question for you. And I want you to consider this, and I want to tie this into how we view not only theology and, and, and the miraculous today, but actually the day-to-day -day ministry of the church. And so here, here this question. Do the healings and deliverance, things like this, exist as a primary objective of Jesus? Or do they have a separate, maybe even a higher purpose? So here's what I'm asking. When Jesus heals someone, when Jesus delivers them, is that his main focus, the main outcome he's hoping for is them to be liberated from that demon, them to be healed of blindness, healed of whatever it might be? Is that his primary objective or is there something even greater than that that Jesus is doing? So let's hang on to that question for a minute and we can even maybe kind of have the idea of like, okay, when I want a healing of some sort, when, when I'm asking God, for healing, like, what am I looking for? What's my main objective? I think we, we see that, and we, and we kind of sense that, like, when I ask, for me, the end goal for me is the healing. And so I think we assign that to what Jesus is doing, and I'm not sure that that's true, and we'll see that play out today. Verse 27, it says, and they were amazed. So all the people in the synagogue says they were all amazed, verse 27, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So when I ask the question, why does Jesus perform miracles? Are they his main objective? Is he doing something maybe greater, bigger, with a higher purpose? Listen to what they say. In that moment, they say, what is this? So they talk about it too. They see the deliverance. They ask about it, but listen to their own answer. A new teaching with authority. So Jesus walks into a city, immediately he goes to a synagogue and begins to teach. And it says that they, under, they, they hear his teaching, it's unique, it's different, it comes with a new authority. And then something interrupts this, a, a possessed man comes in and this demonic force even speaks to Jesus, validating who Jesus is, and Jesus rebukes that demon. He doesn't need a demon to tell people who he is, he's not looking for evil to tell people that he's good. He rebukes that, and then he delivers that man from that demon. And listen to the outcome, and this is where we get to read into the text and understand what's going on. It's this. They ask about it. Everybody in the synagogue says, whoa, just, what just happened? And listen to their answer. A new teaching 
with authority, a new teaching with authority, they understood that the authority that Jesus has, that the authority Jesus exercised is about his message. It, it causes everybody to kind of enter into that moment and know that the words he's saying are what's important, far more important than the delivering of the man. Now, I'm sure that man is super happy about this. I'm sure the family members of that man, if he was a threat to the community, I'm sure the community is happy about this. We can celebrate the man delivered. But what was Jesus doing in that moment? And what we see from the reaction of the people, from the understanding of the people, is that he is giving and showing, uh, he's giving ways and, and extraordinary ways to show who he is and to give authority to his teaching that people would know that there is something different, distinct, unique, authoritative about Jesus. Verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere and throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So this goes public. This, is, this goes wild. This message gets out. You can imagine that. If something like that happened today here, be hard to do without anybody here. But if something like that happened in a church, you can imagine people would be posting about it on social media. You can imagine that we would go home and we would share that story with others, that we would convey what had taken place, that we would share it probably widely and broadly. And so this goes and it says it once his fame spread everywhere through the surrounding region. Verse 29, and immediately, there's that word again, third time. He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon, as we know him, is Peter, right? So he goes to Simon and Andrew's house. It says immediately when he leaves that, he goes to somebody's house. It's Simon and Andrew's house. He goes also with James and John. These were the first four disciples that Jesus called to him. Verse 30. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, Right? Fourth time in 10 verses, this word immediately is coming up. You think the author has a reason for us, right? And so now there's been these different uses of that word immediately. When Jesus does something, this shows some of his urgency. When, when Jesus commands something to be done and immediately it happens, it shows his authority. We see some of his motive, his urgency, his authority, but we also see the response of people around Jesus. Like last week, when Jesus calls Simon and Andrew, the house he's at, when he calls the two of them to follow him, it says they immediately dropped their nets and went and followed Jesus. In this case, they go in and they find their mom sick and immediately they tell Jesus about it, right? We see the disciples learning who Jesus is, what Jesus can do, what he's about, and we see them now reacting. Kind of reminds us, that for all that we learn or all that we understand about Jesus, that there's a response for us, that there is something we should learn that we should do in response to who we learn, what we learn about Jesus. Verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. I love this verse right here. There's a kind of a cause and effect, if you will. There's this thing and then this thing, right? And so Jesus heals her and she jumps up and begins to serve him, right? I think of when I get better from being sick, it's kind of a slow process. Might be, you know, kind of feeling better today, but still a little weak. And, and that's not what happens. When Jesus heals someone, it's healed, right? She's healed, he's healed, whoever. The person is healed, it's immediate, right? 
And in this setting, what we see is she jumps up and she responds. She begins to serve Jesus. And again, there's this Jesus acts or Jesus teaches or Jesus speaks or Jesus calls to us. And then there's this response. That This response is natural. That we learn how to follow Jesus in response to him. And so we'll put this on the screen. Immediate response. The authority of Jesus is so great that illness and demons vanish, I would say, immediately on those impacted by Jesus respond immediately, right? So that when Jesus commands, it happens like that. But when Jesus does that, people respond also immediately. I just want to ask the question, so how is our response time today? When we hear something, say you hear something today that's new or challenging, that maybe reveals something about Jesus. I mean, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Today we're looking at Jesus, the teacher, his primary ministry of teaching. Maybe we learn something about Jesus. Maybe something is revealed about us. How long before we respond to it? How long before we take that and internalize it and act on it? And when I say we, I just was thinking about that even this morning. Like, how slow do I go when I, when I learn something or I'm convicted of something, I, I realize something I shouldn't be doing, how slow am I at this? Or do I respond immediately? And I just don't think that I do. And I don't think that we do. I don't think it's common that we just react or just respond immediately. When Jesus says, come and do this, do we do it? Do we wait? Do we make it sound spiritual and say, well, I'm going to pray about it for a little bit? How do we respond? So verse 32, And that evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Right? So there's a crowd that gathers around this. And Jesus is healing. He is liberating people from this oppression. Right? This large crowd gathers around that. Now, I want to pause there for just a second. How do we view the miraculous today? So think of like healings as an example. How do we view that today? Do those healings exist simply for our benefit? When, we, when I'm asking for healing for me, when I'm praying for my wife, for her health, do those benefits exist just for us, like just to be better? When you want a healing, is it just for someone to not be sick? Or does this come with a kingdom benefit to it? And, and here's what I mean. When Jesus gathers a crowd and does something, it leads to his teaching ministry. It validates who he is and leads to his teaching ministry, right? And then so he's healing people that don't know him yet. And then they're engaging and responding and following him, even like Simon and, and Andrew's mom, Peter and Andrew's mom. As she's sick, is healed, begins to serve Jesus, begins to become a follower of Jesus. When Jesus speaks and he does this, and we see these crowds of people People begin to follow him. But when I pray, when I ask for healing, for me, for someone else, when we're praying for this world to be post-COVID, if you will, typically we're just praying about the healing. So is it for healing's sake alone, or does Jesus do this to validate his teaching ministry? And if he does it for a reason, for a higher purpose, what is it that we in the church today need to learn from that? How do we take and reimagine or rethink through or, or understand or how the miraculous played a role in the message of Jesus going out, the teaching of Jesus going out, or actually Jesus being known by people. So I've never really, with one exception, I've never really gathered a crowd 
to speak, and then in the midst of it, prayed for healing. There's one exception. It's in a missions trip in Africa. It's a story for another day, but I don't do that. Typically, it's my morning prayer time. I'm going through the prayer list. Like if you checked in today, if you texted, it'll ask you, how can we pray for you? I get those on Monday morning. Our, our elders, our staff, our, our deacons, we get those. We pray for you. But typically, I'm just praying for that. I, it's not in the context of a ministry setting where I'm trying to, I'm just, where I see something and, and see that there's a kingdom outcome of this rather than just maybe me feeling better, you feeling better, or someone we know being healed. And there's a challenge there because that's not exactly how it happens in any place in Scripture, really. Verse 35, And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, meaning Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus gets up early, it's dark out, he goes to be alone, and he begins to pray. He has this daily habit of prayer. In other gospels, it says he would get up early in the morning, go to a quiet place and pray, as was his habit. Like We're taught that Jesus creates space every morning. One of the most challenging things about this years ago in, in, in my walk with Jesus was hearing that Jesus created space every morning before he went about his day, and he seems like his day is packed full of stuff, and yet he made time to get out, be alone, pray. If Jesus, being God in human flesh, fully God yet fully human, if he needed to pray every day, I was convinced that I needed to pray every day. And it began a habit of praying every morning and then reading scripture every morning. And so this year, 2022, one of the things that we want to lean into, and this really comes out of our time together the last four months of studying the, the church and acts and learning what the church did in the first decade, two decades, three decades after the ascension of Jesus, those who knew Jesus, how they lived, and the church that they created, what it looked like. And they had a lot of spiritual disciplines. They had a lot of prayer, individual, and they gathered to pray a lot. They studied God's word, or, or the apostles' teaching is what they would call it, before it was all written down. They were committed to that, that we need to be committed to that. They fasted a lot. We don't fast a lot. And we, that we should learn how to press into these spiritual disciplines, these things that we would do to make ourselves more healthy. Kind of like going to the gym makes us physically healthier. Eating better makes us physically healthier. Learning these things that are a part of our spiritual practice to make us healthier. So we're going to get this Mark reading schedule out to you. We would invite you to join us. It's 90 days. If I could just challenge you, would you join us for 90 days and see if it doesn't make an impact in your life? Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, meaning for Jesus, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So he says, as soon as they find him, he says, listen, let's, let's go to the next towns, right? He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. He gives us this purpose. That is why I stepped out of my glory down to heaven, or, I mean, down to earth, from heaven, down to earth. That's why I came to you in human form was that I could preach or teach, that I could bring and deliver this message from God. He says this, and it says, it says then Jesus went preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons, right? So his priority was his teaching ministry, that he would go and teach people. So here's a note for you. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus prioritizes his teaching and preaching ministry over everything else until going to the cross. 
What do we prioritize in our ministries, in our churches, in our homes? Do we prioritize, let's just use the church, do we prioritize here getting people better, helping people? Good things, by the way. But do we prioritize how we help people get from where they are now to the next place, maybe in their life, maybe addiction recovery or counseling or therapy? Is what we do in the church, is it primarily therapeutic? Is it to make our lives a little better here? And again, not saying that's all bad. Or do we learn from this that there's a teaching ministry that Jesus prioritizes over all else? That there is things that we need to learn, that things that we need to become that's rooted in his teaching that we need to embrace and we need to respond to. And instead of making the church therapeutic and comfortable and helpful to us, but rather be something that teaches us how to live a different life. Those are different things. That it's sometimes what God calls us to, what Jesus teaches us, will make us uncomfortable. Sometimes maybe that healing doesn't come, but there's still a calling. That sometimes what we learn from Jesus isn't comfortable, but calls us to a kingdom purpose. Do we see the healing ministry as more important to ourselves, to those around us, than we do the teaching ministry when Jesus prioritizes those differently? So with all that in mind, listen to this next story, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. I love that, that, that language of moved with pity. Like, he feels bad for the guy. And so he says to him, I will be clean, be healed. The leper says, if you desire to, if you want to, you can make me better. And he says, I want to be healed, be clean. Verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Again, that word immediately repeated over and over again. Verse 43, and it says, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing that which Moses commanded for a proof to them. Doesn't it seem weird that when Jesus heals someone or casts out maybe a demon, delivers this person or does something, something miraculous, he often says, Don't tell anybody about it. That's always kind of puzzled me, like, okay, why? And we keep reading, and we look at the passage and try and understand, like, why wouldn't it be important to go share? And to be fair, Jesus says, listen, I want you to take, because leprosy was a disease of the skin. It wasn't viewed as sin. It was viewed as unclean and ritually impure. It's a lot like social distancing today, as we see COVID. Somebody tests positive, and we don't want them to be around other people. Let's use the word unclean for this conversation, that we would see them as unclean when they get better, they have a negative test, or however that works right now with the protocols. Then in this case, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, they would take that proof that they are clean now, that they are not, uh, that they are not sick. They would show it to a priest. They would make an offering to God. They would thank God for that. And they would be included in the community of faith again. And so when he tells the leper to be clean, he's saying be healed. And then he says, now don't go telling everybody. What I want you to do is I want you to go by what God has told you. I want you to go to the priest and I want you to worship God for this. So he does heal. Jesus does want this man to be well. And immediately he is when Jesus heals him. 
But when he tells him not to tell everyone, it always makes me ask, why not tell everybody? Verse 45. But he went out. This is the man that's been healed. He went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So what happens when the news of this healing spreads? People start flocking to this, to this person who just did this extraordinary thing, this healing. And it says that Jesus was no longer able to teach because everybody is coming out to him. In other words, everybody is coming and they're asking for the miraculous. And since Jesus wasn't able to teach, so he has to go out to the more desolate places, but people are still following and coming. So here's a note for you. Miraculous distractions. Crowds often lose sight of the message when the miraculous takes place, making the extraordinary the focus and missing the teaching of the gospel. Consider that. Imagine something extraordinary, miraculous happened in church one day. Watch people hear something like that. Does the message of the gospel that's proclaimed through scripture, is that the thing we talk about or does this miraculous thing get talked about? What trends on social media? It's the miraculous. And then when people show up, what are they showing up for? Well, they're showing up for the miraculous. And Jesus, it was preventing him from actually getting what he said was more important out, the message of the gospel. Sometimes even the miraculous could be a distraction in the teaching ministry of Jesus. So he commands the man, don't go tell everybody, but go be obedient. Tell the priest, worship God, give God glory for this. But he doesn't listen. Instead, they make Jesus about a miracle worker instead of a messenger of the gospel. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I love when people say that Jesus was homeless. He wasn't homeless. He had a home. He traveled around a lot, didn't often have a place to stay, never homeless. Right as he returns back to the place where his family was, where he had a home, where he grew up, where he lived with his family, he goes home, and the report goes out, hey, Jesus is back. Verse 2, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near the house because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed with which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is preaching. He's preaching in a home, lots of homes had ministry going on in the first century, both in Jesus' days and in the days following, led by his apostles. One of the things that we prioritize most is what we call our community groups. I just sent a message out to my community group leaders this morning and said, hey, listen, just remember this year how we studied in Acts, how more ministry took place in living rooms than anywhere else, in homes. And Jesus is in a home, and he's preaching, and these people come, and they bring somebody they want to have healed. But they can't get near this house because there's a crowd. And so they go through the roof. Now, I'm grateful. That's probably why I don't publish my address. But I'm grateful that nothing like that happens and people are not trying to go through the roof with people. That would be crazy, right? But here's what happens. It truly happens. These four men bring someone on a, on a mat that they're carrying because he can't move. And so they let him in through the roof. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. Did they come and say, hey, can you forgive my friend for his sins? Uh, no. They brought a guy on a mat who is paralyzed, 
couldn't move his arms and his legs. He's a paralytic, right? And they bring him to him, and they ask for healing. And Jesus, ignoring the fact about the roof, goes directly to them, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why is that what Jesus says? We ask for healing. Your sins are forgiven. What does Jesus do? He forgives his sin, but he doesn't heal him yet. Why? Listen to the emphasis of Jesus. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a great question. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Listen to this question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus, knowing what's in their hearts, says this. Hey, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say that if that's not, if, because that's easier to cover up, right? I can say your sins are forgiven, but maybe I don't have the authority to do that. Now, Jesus does, but they recognize, hey, only God can forgive sins. So, clue, if this is your first time in Mark, Jesus is God. So, that's, that works out well, Right? But they're coming and bringing him for healing. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. The leadership around there, the scribes, the, those who typically would teach, the, the ones that the people said, Jesus teaches with authority, not like these guys, those guys. Those guys are questioning Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? Arise and take up your mat and walk. And the scribes immediately be like, you're right. You just said something and maybe it's not true. Now, bear with the story. Which is easier, verse 9, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus meaning himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and what? Immediately packed up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Why does Jesus not heal at first when they bring the man through the roof into the home? He's preaching, he's teaching, he's telling people about God, the message of the gospel, about who he is. They bring this man. He looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Why does he not heal him right away? Because Jesus views his ability to teach people how to be with God forever as more important than a temporary fix for this man's life. Hear me when I say this. Jesus sees an eternal solution, something you cannot lose, you cannot have taken away, that you are reconciled with God forever as greater than something that you will have been a temporary fix, like giving this man the ability to walk again. You see, when, when Jesus gives someone their sight, or they're walking, or heals them, or today, you get healed of cancer, you'll still go on and die one day. It's temporary. Maybe it lasts a long time, but it's temporary. And Jesus sees the temporary as less important than the eternal. Jesus is showing them, listen, I want to reconcile you to God forever. So if you die of cancer today or COVID today or cancer in 100 years, it doesn't matter. You're with God forever. You want what you can touch, what you can see, what you can experience right now. I want for you something forever. 
See, the gospel message is that, that God created you and me and loves us, designed us, created all of humanity, designed us to be with him forever, that our lives would bring glory to God. Like when Jesus heals this man, it says everybody gave glory to God. That is living a life of worship. Jesus lived an ultimately perfect life of worship. But you and I don't. Humanity never has. Adam and Eve, our, our ancient ancestors, sinned. And when they sinned, they caused all of humanity to be sinful, all of their children, all the generations after. And so you and I enter into this world thousands of years later with thousands of years of sin upon sin, billions of people sinning and going their own direction. And God could have left us in our sin, left us to that penalty, left us separated from him. But God, in love, in benevolence, in care, in grace, in mercy, sends his son, Jesus. God become flesh to reconcile us to God. So maybe cancer isn't the biggest deal. Maybe COVID isn't the biggest thing. Maybe blindness isn't the biggest thing. Maybe a loss of a job isn't the biggest thing. They're all very hard when you have them. But Jesus prioritizes the fact that I want you forever to be reconciled to God the Father. So Jesus comes and teaches and prioritizes that. And then he turns his face towards the cross. He gives his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He dies and lays in a grave and then resurrects three days later, offering every one of us new life, a life newly connected, readily connected to God and empowered by the Spirit. As Jesus ascends back up to heaven, he pours out his Spirit upon the church. Jesus gives us an eternal solution, not a temporary fix. The temporary fixes that Jesus gave out in the New Testament, the healings, the deliverances, the amazing things he did, were to validate the message that he is the one to reconcile us to God the Father forever. That that was his priority in ministry. I'm going to read this last passage really quickly. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at, the ta at a tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. I love that. Follow me, and he does, right? Just like Simon and Peter, just like James and John, just like the, the mother who serves Jesus, just, just like those, they, just, they hear the call of Jesus, know it is special, know it's unique, and they respond right away. Verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he, meaning Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Listen to what Jesus says when the religious people ask, like, why does he hang out with these crooked and corrupt and sinful people? He says, well, the well, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call sinners, not the righteous. Now, granted, everybody there is sinful, but some are ready to admit that and others are not. He uses illness as a metaphor for what he has come to do spiritually, eternally, and so again, reinforcing the message that his eternal message, reconciling humanity to God, is far more important than anything we can endure in this life. Will we respond to that? 
So here's our final note for the day. What is our focus? How can we learn from Jesus emphasizing his teaching ministry so that we do not drift into a therapeutic version of Christianity, making it all about serving us? One of the dangers in the church today, and, and I think we've seen this a lot during COVID, right? That the church exists to serve us, make us feel better. So we might go to a church that meets in person and doesn't wear masks, or we might you know, go to a church that has an online service and doesn't, or we might make those choices based on like, what do I want from this? We're turning the church into something therapeutic, makes us feel better. We don't go to a lot of churches that talk a lot about sin or that call people to doing things that's uncomfortable because we can just flip the channel, go to another live stream or go to another church. Well, they just tell us three steps to be happier. We've turned the church into something therapeutic based on kind of that idea of what I really want is to feel better. It's that temporary fix rather than the eternal solution, which is Christ, our Savior. How do we do that? Maybe in little ways, maybe in big ways. How do we prioritize the temporary and not the eternal? How do we look for what it is that we want instead of what God wants? It's like today. Nothing I want more than to have everybody in here everybody healthy, no masks, no restraints, no, just to hear the voices sing when we sing a song. That's not our option today. And so here we are. We preach to an empty room. We join on a live, on, on a live stream, whether it's on a TV or a phone or an iPad or whatever you're doing. And, and, and we kind of condescend to what we can do because the desire is forever that we could be the church, that we could be reconciled to God forever through Christ. And if that means in person or online, we say that it is more important for the eternal than the temporal. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. If we're honest, we love you because you first loved us. We didn't go looking for you, Jesus. You came looking for us. We didn't give our lives for you. You gave your life for us. Now, you call us to give our lives in response. But you always move first. You chose us. Like in each case, as you looked at the disciples, you said, follow me, and they do. You've spoken to our hearts, and you've said, follow you. And we have. For those who have not, for those who are listening and have not put you at the top of their lives, in the forefront, on the throne of their hearts, Lord, I pray that they would. I pray that today, immediately, they would turn and follow you. I pray for those of us that have put you in that place. I pray that we would turn away from everything else and immediately put you as the number one priority in our lives. Because that is so, so quick to slip away as our daily lives kind of crowd you out. Our sin, our flesh, the evil of the world crowds you out. So help us to renew that focus daily. Help us in the church to remember this is about forever, not just about for today. Let us see the church and the gathering and the others as more therapeutic and more a community that is seeking your teaching daily. That we could grow together daily. Help us to read scripture together daily, pray daily, learn to fast, learn to meditate on you. 
Help us to turn our lives from the temporary to the eternal, fixing our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because for the joy set before you of reconciling with us forever, you endured the cross. You set aside the shame of the cross and you gave your life. So Jesus, we love you. Teach us to better follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.